You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Today we are moving along into our uh, next message in a series on the church. We're, we're doing a series uh, on the glory and seeking to recover the glory of what it means to be a participant, a participant in God's family uh, in the local church. And so we're calling it Remember, kind of a play on words. We're remembering, but we're also kind of uh, refreshing our own commitments to what it means to be a part of His body. And today, I want to talk about the idea of when we gather. I want to talk about this room, uh, not really this room, but the people in this room and what this gathering means. We're going to look at a number of different scriptures. Normally, I teach a passage, but I'm going to look at several passages today uh, along these lines. When we gather, what happens when we gather? What are we expecting to happen when we gather? Uh, How do we know if when we've gathered what's supposed to happen really happens uh, in our gathering? So this is a unique gathering, not our church, but any place where people gather uh, where the gospel is preached among believers. It is a unique gathering of all other gatherings on the planet. Uh, There's nothing like it. And uh, so that's what we want to talk about today. Uh, This week I came across a story written um, about a young woman named Amber Dawn. She um, was featured on a podcast called Criminal, and this is her story. When Amber Dawn was 20 years old, she moved into a one-bedroom apartment on her own. Well, at least she believed she was alone. The apartment was in a small town in Enumclaw, Washington, at the foothills of Mount Rainier. On the night she moved in, Amber thought she heard footsteps in the attic. She brushed it off, telling herself that it was just her imagination being overactive in an unfamiliar setting. I was laying in my bed, and I heard footsteps in the attic. They were very clear footsteps, she told the criminal podcast. I wasn't quite sure why I would be hearing that, but whenever you move into a new apartment, you start to notice all different sounds that that particular space makes, and so I wasn't quite sure what it was, but it sounded like footsteps. That's when Amber noticed a trap door in the ceiling right above her head. It led to a crawl space to the attic, an attic that Amber wouldn't set foot in for the next six months. Amber wasn't home much as she worked three jobs, but when she was home, she noticed that a few strange things were happening in the apartment. Weirdly, cans of soft drink, cans of soup would go missing. A crime that Amber originally blamed on her brother, who lived three blocks away and had a spare key. One day, Amber's apartment flooded while she was at work. She had just bought a German shepherd puppy, and she would keep her in the bathroom when she was out of the house. I came home, opened up the bathroom door, and my puppy was in the bathroom sink. There is no way she could have gotten into that sink. There was water all over the ground. It was a big mess, but she was sitting in the sink. Someone must have put her in that sink. 
Once again, Amber convinced herself it was nothing. And then one night at 7 p.m., Amber heard a loud noise in the bedroom, but put it down to being one of her pets. I just dismissed it because I have animals and they make noise, she told the podcast. At 11 p.m., Amber drew herself a bath, turned off all the lights, and settled in for a long soak. While in the tub, she looked up at the ceiling, and that's when she noticed the trap door of the attic was open. I put it all together. I was like, okay, the footsteps the first night, the doors being closed when I had left them open, the missing food, the dog in the sink, there was someone living in my house with me. Amber very slowly got out of the tub and put on her dressing gown. I'll spare you, there's tons of detail about how she walks out knowing that there's a guy in the closet. I'm going to spare you all that. She then walked out the front door with a hammer in one hand and her puppy in the other. Her sister-in-law arrived at the house within minutes and they phoned the police. By the time the police arrived on the scene, the man was gone, leaving nothing but in the attic, a sleeping bag, a book, and some food. I don't know how he was getting into the apartment. I left a window open for my cat, so he could have gone in and out that way. I had a spare key. He could have taken my spare key and made a copy. He could have lived there before me. I I don't know. Amber moved out the next day, and she still hopes that one day she'll find the person who was watching her every move for those six months. She says her close call has taught her to listen to her instincts. The only thing stranger than that story is at the conclusion of the story, there is an interactive link that says, do you have a similar story? Share it in the comments below. (laughs) A similar story? That you move in somewhere and someone is living in your attic for six months? I mean, is this a common problem that we would have comments of people sharing, oh, same thing happened to me? I don't mean to mock or belittle Amber because she is a victim. But as I read this, I found myself thinking, how is this even possible? How is it possible that when you hear footsteps, you don't check it out? How is it possible that when you are missing food on a regular basis and your puppy mysteriously appears in a sink that she never could have reached, that that you don't rule out your brother who has a spare key and then search the entire place, including the attic? As I read this, I found myself asking, how is it possible that someone can be living in your home and you are only sort of vaguely aware on occasion of their presence? That in your day-to-day living, you, you live as if no one's living in your house, but occasionally there's some sign that a stranger is in your attic. How is it possible to only vaguely be aware of someone who lives with you? And yet, something similar happens all the time. How many Sundays have I arrived to worship with God's people and either been unaware or only vaguely aware of God's presence in his house? 
How many times have I joined his people in singing and only had a hazy perception of his presence? I mean, we were reminded this morning from Zephaniah that he is in our midst. But for how many of us, that was a surprise because we weren't thinking anything like that as we sang. How many times have I heard his word soundly proclaimed and been aware of the preacher but much less aware of the presence of God? How many times have I received the Lord's Supper and been aware of the physical bread and the physical cup, but have only had a vague recognition that someone's present at the table? The Lord Jesus Christ. Can you relate to this? It's possible that we can gather Sunday after Sunday and not be perceptive of God's very presence in the house. The Bible says that the gathered people of God are the temple of God. And what I want to talk about today is this truth from the Bible, that when we gather, He is present. When we gather, God is uniquely present. The Corinthian church, a church in the New Testament, which had a lot of problems, but one of their problems was they had completely forgotten this reality. They were behaving as if no one was in the house. And uh, Paul reminds them in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 of this. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The you here is plural. Do you not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? He's reminding them. I mean, this is really an astounding statement to make to the Corinthians of all churches, but it's an astounding statement, an astounding question, I should say. He's saying in this question, do you not know who you are and do you not know when you gather what happens? Many of us have an idea that well, we are the temple of God individually, and Paul does make one reference to that where he, he says, don't sleep with temple prostitutes because Jesus lives in you and you're joining Jesus to a prostitute when you do that. So he does make that reference. Um, and so we say that, yeah, I exercise, I'm the temple of God. I, I don't smoke cigarettes or uh, eat red meat because this is the temple or whatever you say, you know, I'm taking care of the temple. And there is a reference of that. But the much more common picture of the New Testament is that we are the temple. That he is present when we gather together. He dwells in us. It's interesting, he says, do you not know that you are the temple? You are God's temple. And when he uses the word temple, he doesn't use the word that refers to the temple building and its general precincts, the the surrounding sort of precincts. He uses the word that means the very sanctuary where God is present. You are God's dwelling. When you gather, you are God's dwelling. And he's making a theological point here that the gathered church is the people of God's presence. It's fundamentally what makes us the church. We are the people of God's presence. Now, Paul's application in that chapter is he's talking about unity. And he's saying, you know, when you gather, how can there be division? Because God's in your midst. You are the people of God, the spirit people, so to speak. But if we step back away from that particular application and just look at the theological point itself, that the the church, the people of God, are the temple of God 
it makes me want to ask, do we actually think about that, think about His presence? Do we actually consider His presence? His presence is the distinguishing factor that sets apart God's people from all other groups on the planet. What makes the church, and particularly our gathering, unique is that we are the people of God, and we are the temple of God, and when we gather, He is present in His temple. Well, how do we know He is present? Are there signs? Are there puppies in sinks and missing cans of Pepsi? Are there signs that someone is here? How do we know? How does he reveal his presence? Well, the Bible speaks of his presence in a number of ways, and I'm going to be very narrow today in this sermon. I could talk, we could talk broadly about his presence. I mean, there's a sense in which he's present everywhere at all times, that's true. There's a sense in which he is present in the believer. Uh, we're unified with Christ, union with Christ, absolutely a big point of the New Testament. That is true. But when we gather, he is also present in a lot of ways. He's present in our fellowship. Uh, He's present in our singing. He's present in our praying. He's present through the exercise of spiritual gifts. He's present through our serving. He's present through our giving. God is present through everything that happens when the church gathers. But I want to narrow it and think very specifically today about how he's present in word and sacrament. The Reformers said that there are three marks of a true church. Uh, This is found in the Belgic Confession. It says there's three marks of a true church. This is what Reformation Christians have always believed. They are the pure preaching of the gospel, the pure preaching of God's Word, the pure administration of the sacraments, baptism and communion, and surprisingly, church discipline. That is, accountability for people who profess Christ and walk astray from their profession. It's one of the three marks of what a true church is. Without it, there is not a true church, the Reformers said. Without the preaching of the Word, there's not a true church. Without baptism and communion, there's not a true church, according to the Reformers. We certainly see this emphasized in Scripture. So today, I'm going to talk about particularly God's God's presence through Word and sacrament. And I'm going to talk, uh, though He is present through word, though he is present through water and bread and wine. I'm going to speak specifically about the word and about the Lord's Supper. I want to talk about those two things today, just acknowledging that he's present in other ways as well. So first of all, when we gather, God is present through the preaching of his word. We find this in 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3, 16 Paul says this, all Scripture is, get this, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearance and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with, competent, with complete patience and teaching. Okay, here's what's happening in this passage. He begins by talking about, in the section we read, he begins by talking about the unique nature of the Scripture. The Scripture is breathed out by God. It is unlike any other written book because it is breathed out by God himself. 
Now, God uses human authors. He uses their personalities. He uses their contacts. He uses their gifts. He uses their style. People that translate the Scripture will tell you that different authors write with a different style. So, he maintains the sort of human element uh, to the writing, yet he oversees, he superintends the process. He controls the process so that the final product in the original writings of sacred Scripture is the very Word of God. So he establishes this, Timothy, this is God's message. God breathes out. The, the word is breath. It is, it, it is the breathed out word. It has to do with his, his presence. This is what the Word of God is. So, Timothy, what should you do? What should you do? Now, this is what's so interesting. These are Paul's last words. You're reading the last words here of the Apostle Paul, and he's passing the baton to his protege, Timothy, and he's saying, look, I've run the race. I'm about to die. So, so here's what you need to remember. Last words are very important. If you've ever been with someone uh, in a dying process, their last words to you stick with you. They matter. Jesus' last recorded words, in the, well, at least in the Gospels, there's some words in Acts. But in the Gospels, you know, is the Great Commission. This is what we're left with, go into all the world. Wow, that's important. This is Jesus' last words. So Paul's last words are, the Scripture is everything. Man, it is the, it is the breathed out Word of God. So here's what you should do. You should preach that word because the breathed out word of God will affect the people of God when it is declared. And he he gives them a solemn charge. Verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearance and kingdom. Preach the word. He's saying, listen, uh, this is serious. I'm charging you solemnly in the presence of God and I'm telling you Jesus will come back to judge. And so he will judge what you do ultimately with what I'm telling you, Timothy. Preach this God-breathed word. Now, the word preach is interesting here. We have all kinds of ideas. We say, well, this is teaching and this is preaching and, you know, that person's a teacher and that person's a preacher. And, well, he was kind of going along and then he commenced to preaching, you know, whatever that means. So we have these ideas. We think of preaching as like a style. Or I don't know what we think it is, but we have all kinds of ideas about what it is. But the word is very interesting. The word preach the word, in context, preach the God-breathed word. The word preach is a verbal form of the noun herald, a herald. Someone, you know what a herald is, someone who brings a message. It means to proclaim aloud publicly. A herald was someone in, in the first century Roman context that brought an announcement, that delivered a message. We don't know much about first century, I'm speaking, you may, but most of us typically don't know a lot about uh, first century Roman heralds. I actually saw a, um, a sort of a mini-series that had to do with ancient Rome, and regularly in that, they showed the herald who would come down to the square and announce the news of today. And every time I watched him, I, that's what the Bible's talking about. What we do know is medieval heralds. We're familiar with medieval kind of heralds, guy in tights, a guy who comes in, unrolls, gets to the city square, everyone gathers, gets to the city square and says, hear ye, hear ye. You know that guy, hear ye, hear ye. A message from the king. And everyone listens, what, 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 is, what is the king saying? And, and, and that guy who does the hear ye, hear ye thing, that's Timothy here. He's saying, you come and you herald 
this word of God. You announce the message. It's not your authority. You're, You're delivering something, in this case, from the king. That that herald, nobody cares about that herald. Nobody's going, wow, he was a great performer. Man, did you see those tights? I thought he's going to wear the green ones, but the red ones are amazing. Or they're not doing that. They're not like, wow, that, that, that herald is incredible. Who's your favorite herald? Which herald do you podcast? Nobody's saying that. They're saying, what is the king saying? What does it mean to us, his subjects? This is the issue. And so this is what he says. The the Word of God is unique. It is the very breathed out uh, message from God by His Spirit, Timothy. So don't mess around. Get up and herald that message. Announce it. Proclaim it. Deliver it. You see what's happening as we gather and the Word is being heralded. The God-breathed Word is being announced and we're not gathering here. I'm putting myself, I'm talking, so it's a little weird that I'm talking about this. But last week I was sitting right there and listening to Jeff. And so I'm thinking back myself there, okay, what was I doing when Jeff was preaching? What was I expecting when he was preaching? This word herald, the God-breathed word, means a lot. It means that we are not spectators of some human, or merely human orator. We're not just gathering to hear a human speak. We're not consumers trying to get some motivational pitch to pump us up for our week. We're not students listening to some wisdom guru who's going to give us some life hacks, some tips for self-help so that we can have a better life. We're not fans looking to a celebrity to entertain us. We are subjects to the king of the universe showing up to listen to what he has to say to us through some human messenger that he has called in some location to deliver his message. We have been summoned to hear him, to hear the good news of Jesus Christ announced afresh to us from the king. This is what the church gathering is about. This is not in its entirety, but this is an important part of why we gather. This is why it's important that we gather, because God is speaking uniquely in this moment to us as a congregation. When the Scripture is heralded, the Word is proclaimed aloud, the breathed-out Word of God is what we hear. This is the point. Biblical preaching is not just talk about God. It is talk from God. It is talk from God. That's exactly what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. We talked about this verse quite a bit in the fall. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. What does Paul say about the announcement of the gospel, about heralding the gospel? He says, we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. Paul says this this is what happened. When you heard the message from God, you received it for what it is. Not just a speech, but when the Word is accurately proclaimed, when the Word is read and opened up, you heard that as a message from God. And that made all the difference to you. 
The preacher is not merely informing us of what God has done historically, though that must be happening, but it is God actually doing something right now. God reveals Himself. We just sang, your word is revelation. When the word is accurately, truthfully taught, God is revealing Himself through the Scripture to us. He's using the ordinary means of speech to do something extraordinary in our midst. What Paul says to the Thessalonians, you received the Word of God, you heard the Word of God. Now, we are to test all preaching as the Bereans did. Uh, The book of Acts says that they examined the Scriptures to see what was said, if it was true. Absolutely. We are to examine what we hear, but it says that the Bereans, they, they they came expecting, they came with joy, they heard with joy and examined. So, we lean in and we examine both. We don't lean in and just say, well, that's what my church said, so it's got to be true, and give like some kind of blanket endorsement as if the church, the teaching of the church equals the Word of God. I'm not saying that. So we don't just take everything and say, I don't know, it didn't sound biblical to me, but I don't know. No, that's wrong. But on the other hand, we don't posture ourselves as critics saying, hey, I just prove everything to me. I don't know. Yeah, probably I'm just looking for nitpicking one thing. There's a grammatical error about 20 minutes in. No, we come in eager to hear and to receive from God. So what are you expecting to hear when you gather on Sunday morning? Do you listen actively or sort of passively? Do you, how could you better prepare for hearing from God? If he's speaking from his word, how could you better prepare? How could you better respond to what you hear? When we gather, God is present through his word announced, heralded, proclaimed by a messenger, a herald, a preacher. God is present through his preached word, but he's also present in another way that's significant in the scripture, and that is he's present through the Lord's Supper. When we gather, he is present through communion. Now, God's presence in communion has divided Catholics and Protestants. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a central part, uh, central point of difference and demarcation. It's a central point of difference in understanding the gathering and what actually happens as well. And we don't hold the Roman Catholic view that the bread and the cup are physically changed uh, into the body and blood, the actual body and blood of the Lord. But having said that, we also don't want to overreact on the entire other side, like happens sometimes. React so far on the other side that the one place Jesus most certainly is absent is when we pass the bread and cup. He's nowhere around in that moment. We don't go to the other extreme to say, nothing is happening here, folks, only a reminder, only a memorial, nothing of spiritual meaning in the here and now, nothing of spiritual refreshing or encouraging could possibly be happening in this moment because we don't want to be Roman Catholic when we think about communion. No, Christ is present with us in the Lord's Supper, and the language of the New Testament regarding the Lord's Supper points to this present, uh, His presence. It points to relationship. It points to encounter. It points to presence. So here's an example. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, Paul says, the cup 
of blessing that we bless, and he's talking about uh, the, the drink, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now, again, just as preach was a, um, was a pivotal word in understanding the passage I read earlier, the communion passage I just read, the word participation is a pivotal word for understanding it. The word participation can be translated sharing. It can be translated communion, and that's why it's called communion, by the way. It can be translated communion. It can actually be translated fellowship. It's a word that is tossed around uh, commonly in the church. It's the word koinonia, which means fellowship. We, we think of that as fellowshipping with other believers. Wow, they really have, uh, it, in, the, in the New Testament was written Greek, so the word there is koinonia. And, and sometimes people will talk about that. Yeah, there's some real koinonia going on in our community group. That means there was a fellowship. There was a sharing. We were united and together. So that's the word that's used here. He's saying that when you eat the bread and drink the cup, you are fellowshipping in the work of Jesus. You are participating. You are communing with the work of Jesus. You're communing with Him through the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a mystery here, to be sure, just as there's a mystery that someone could announce the Scripture and God would be present in that moment, just as there's mystery there, there's mystery here as well. There's mystery here as well. Later in the same chapter, uh, Paul calls it the table of the Lord. So later he doesn't call it communion or participation or fellowship. He calls it the table of the Lord. And then at another place in the next chapter, in chapter 11, he calls it the Lord's Supper. And all three of these definitions or words are very informative. You know, if we had one of them, we could say, well, hey, don't, don't overdo it with the image. But given three of them, I think we have to think about it. He calls it a fellowship with the body and blood of Christ, a participation, a communion. So fellowship, then he calls it table, then he calls it supper. Every one of those terms indicate encounter, relationship. They signify presence. When you engage someone in supper, there is, uh, there's a sense in which you are, they're present with you. When you have fellowship, there's a presence. When, when you uh, are at the table, the table is a place. In the ancient Near East, the table was a place. Oftentimes, a table at dinner could be a symbolic sign of when those who are at odds are reconciled. You reconciled even over a meal together. There was a presence that is indicated, that is signified. We are nourished spiritually by God's Spirit as we receive by faith the bread and the cup. And here's one of the reasons. Sacraments have been called, the sacraments have been called visible words. I like that. Visible words. So when you receive, when you observe a baptism or being baptized, there's some things being said. But when you receive communion, there are things being said. It's the table. It's the supper. It, things like this are being said. You are welcomed before God. God welcomes you into his presence. You are forgiven. You were at odds, but you are now restored, and this meal reminds us of that truth. There is that experience of communing. 
uh, you are declared righteous because of the body and blood of Christ, which you have received by faith. You are adopted into his family. You are loved. You are reconciled to God. When we gather, he is present in many ways. And in the Lord's Supper, he is present to speak words to us through the tangible means of the bread and the cup. You know, meals play a prominent role in the Bible uh, when we think about God's presence with humanity. So, for instance, prior to the fall, Adam and Eve ate all their meals before God in the garden, in communion, in His presence, in an unobstructed presence. Before His face, they ate all of their meals. But sin changed that. Uh, Sin changed that, and their fellowship with God was broken. And their fellowship with God was broken because of a meal. They were forbidden to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They could eat of every other tree. But when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the relationship was broken. And what happened? They were banished from His presence. Now, God's present everywhere in one sense, but in another sense, they are banished from the garden. They're banished from the direct sort of unmediated presence of God. And then to restore us to relationship with God, God becomes man in Jesus Christ. Jesus comes and lives a perfect life, the life we could never have lived, though we're called to live, required to live. Jesus gave his life on the cross, and on the cross he bore our sins upon himself. And then he was resurrected after the third day to demonstrate that what he said was true, that he had taken our place, that he is our substitute, and that he is raised to defeat the power of sin, death, the enemy. But what Jesus does is he does that act. It's the act of his dying and rising. His dying as our substitute and his rising. That when we believe that, when we turn from sin and believe that by faith, we're reconciled to God. But Jesus also institutes a meal. So there is freedom and fellowship to eat before God in the garden. There is a sinful meal where Adam and Eve disobey God and eat the fruit of the tree and are banished from his presence. And Jesus comes to restore us into the presence of God where we no longer have to go to a physical temple to encounter his presence, but ultimately he indwells us and he gathers with us as we gather. He restores us to that through his broken body and shed blood, which is which is portrayed for us in a fellowship meal, the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, through ordinary means of the bread and the cup, we remember what He has done, and we experience those visible words, that sense of forgiveness and restoration in His presence, and we experience fellowship with Him and with His people. There's a fellowship with God and His people that happens in this moment. 1 Corinthians 11 says that as we do this, we proclaim His death until He comes. It's this pointing that he will come. And when he comes, there'll be another meal. So there was eating in the garden. There was eating of the tree and a banishing from his presence. There is the eating of the Lord's Supper, which is the restoration, representing the restoration of what Christ has done for us. And then there will be the marriage supper of the Lamb, 
We proclaim his death until he comes, until the day that we gather with his people in what the Bible describes as a feast of all believers before the face of Jesus Christ. The table, the meal, it throughout the Bible is a running, a running picture having to do with God's presence. God's presence. And so the Lord's Supper is this experience where we encounter him in a fresh, meaningful way. Have you considered his presence in the supper? Maybe you have reacted towards uh, your upbringing or background and said, hey, this is, there's nothing to this. Um, it's just something we've got to do. But, I, but there's very little anticipation. Or do you receive the Lord's Supper by faith that Christ is nourishing your soul as you consider the gospel, as you meditate on what he's done for you, as you hear and believe and receive the visible words, as his spirit emblazons the realities of redemption afresh on your soul, as you feel in a fresh way the welcome of God which comes through the gospel proclaimed by word and the gospel proclaimed by receiving together the bread and the cup. Do you hear the words, forgiven, welcome into my presence, joined with my people, loved, never forsaken? Do you hear that? Do you experience that? Do you think about that? You know, we just simply cannot honor the Lord when we gather on Sundays if we aren't thinking about His presence, anticipating His presence, desiring His presence, looking for His presence, arriving, anticipating His presence, celebrating and enjoying His presence among the people of God. That happens in myriad ways, which I mentioned. It happens in a number of ways, but in a very central way, it happens through word and sacrament through preaching and the Lord's Supper and gathered worship. And that's why gathered worship is so important. It's very important to the Lord. The Lord takes one day in seven and sets that aside. The Lord's day where we gather in worship, gather with his people, we rest from our normal labors, and we gather with his people in worship. It, 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 and it's a feast for our soul. The Puritans used to call the Sabbath a feast for the soul. It's the day where in a unique way we have the privilege and the opportunity to encounter God through His Word, through His sacrament, through singing, through fellowship, through His people. Because when we gather, He is present. You know, sometimes people criticize the church, and I get this, I criticize the church, uh, our church and other churches and me, I criticize myself. Uh, people criticize the church as sort of being boring or irrelevant. And I have preached boring and irrelevant sermons, and I've led through communion, uh, and it felt boring and irrelevant. And I have heard others preach, and it seemed boring and irrelevant. And I've been through singing times that seemed boring and irrelevant. That's what we feel sometimes. But the answer to that is not wowing everybody with something that's going to really grab them. The answer to that is discerning and recognizing the presence of God. Listen to this quote by our, the late R.C. Sproul. I love what he says here. He says, if people find worship boring and irrelevant, it can only mean that they have no sense of the presence of God in it. 
When we study the action of worship in Scripture and the testimony of church history, we discover a variety of human responses to the sense of the presence of God. Some people tremble in terror, falling with their faces to the ground. Others weep in mourning. Some are exuberant in joy. Still others are reduced to a pensive silence. Though the responses differ, one reaction we never find is boredom. It's poss- it is impossible to be bored in the presence of God if you know that He is there. Do we know that He is here? Are we listening and discerning and receiving and believing by faith? When we gather, He is here. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.